Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Now that we're in November, a lot of fraud fighters are getting prepared or are already seeing a spike in volume, whether you are in the banking side and you're seeing your cardholders have different purchases than they usually do or higher volume of purchases, or you're on e-commerce retail, which is really the front lines in the holiday season in Q4. Some retailers will actually have 50 to 75% of their revenue come in in Q4. So we know that volume is just really high. And sometimes that can be overwhelming, but also fun. But late nights, early mornings, I remember one retailer who he's been in retail for a very long time in fraud fighting and used to joke with me that November 1st, he would be asking his building facilities person to install a seatbelt onto his office chair because he probably wasn't going anywhere, but was probably going to have a lot of stress. So retailers are going to see a lot of volume. And within that is going to be fraudulent orders and abuse, you know, in so many different forms. But more than anything, the volume is of people who are ordering gifts for other people can also look risky. So there's a lot to consider in that area. And even if you aren't one of those groups of fraud fighters that I just mentioned, you're really going to want to listen to this episode because while we started out talking about holiday preparations and we did talk about them a lot, we also veered off into other topics because my guest today is my dear friend, Diana Gajic Physic. Diana is the head of the fraud department for JD Sports North America and Finish Line, and she's been on Fraudology before. In fact, her episode from February of this past year about sneaker bots is still the episode with the highest downloads in the entire Fraudology catalog. And I think we're on episode 144 today. So (laughs) I know you guys really enjoy learning from her and I do too. And that's why I asked her to come back. Obviously, Q4 is so busy for so many people. And While a lot of the leaders in e-commerce retail would say that it's important to prepare for the holiday season year round, there are some things that you can do just even with a few days before the craziness that might help as well. We also veered into some other topics like why Diana doesn't believe in having manual review on her team. And that can sometimes be a controversial topic within fraud circles. But she explains why that's been good for her team and why she really believes in in the way that she's structured her fraud and risk stack, as well as the strategy piece. I mean, for a large company like JD Sport in North America, it is almost unheard of that they are a team of three, including Diana. And that's because of the systems and the layers of processes and technology that she's put into her overall strategy to be able to rely on that. We also talked about why it's so important to make yourself very useful to the rest of the organization and how she's been able to do that in some non-traditional ways, or at least ways where she's helping in ways that may not actually be directly fraud related. The rest of the company may not think, oh, well, Diana would know about that because it's fraud. 
but because she's helped in so many different places, because I mean, let's be honest, a lot of us that manage fraud teams or a lot of you that manage fraud teams have a very big understanding of the process end to end. And so if something's broken somewhere, you can usually figure out, well, where is it broken? Okay, what are the symptoms? Okay, this is who we need to talk to. This is what we need to do. And so that's how she's kind of helped with that. There, She also did an episode, I think in fall of 2021, about talking to and working with other departments. So if that's a topic that you're extra interested in, I highly recommend going back and looking at that. If you just search Diana, she spells it in the way that it was spelled on her birth certificate. She's from Serbia. It's D-A-J-A-N-A. If you search that within the Fraudology part of your podcast app, you'll find the episodes that she's been on. And I highly recommend listening to them after this one, of course. <laughs> Another place that you can learn from Diana a little bit more about holiday preparation, because truthfully, we ran out of time because we veered off into other areas. But again, I think they'll be interesting to everyone listening and maybe not just e-commerce retailers with physical goods or those with digital gift cards or subscriptions, the ones that are very popular this time of year. For more specific information about holiday prep, you can watch her presentation from the CMP virtual summit that occurred in October. And I will put a link in the show description for you to be able to watch that. And it's completely free. Also, I'm really excited that Diana will be offering online training for fraud and risk leaders in 2023. This is something that she talks about a little bit in our conversation. And I really want to support her in this. I think that there is so much she, that people can learn from her. I'm so lucky to get to know hundreds of really badass fraud fighters. And I get to see, oh, wow, that person knows a lot. And Diana's been in fraud for over 20 years in different areas of commerce. And so she has a lot to provide. And I'm excited that she'll be offering that soon. Uh, if you are interested in it, I highly suggest following her on LinkedIn, which of course I will put a link to her LinkedIn profile in the show notes. And you can even ping her and, and let her know that you're interested in information when that becomes available. Clearly, she has to get through her own retail peak before really finalizing that training, but she's been working on it the last several months. And I've had the great privilege of getting to see the outline and give a little bit of feedback. And I really think it's something that will be that's needed in the industry as well as will be really appreciated and learned from. Okay, well, with that, let's dive right into my conversation with a you know top thought leader in e-commerce retail fraud and abuse, Diana Gajic Physic. Today, I am so happy to welcome back my good friend, Diana Grajic Physic. Diana, welcome back to Fraudology. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me again. Of course. Well, I feel kind of selfish because I luckily get to talk to you like a couple of times a week or at least maybe twice a month where we have some long phone conversation. <laughs> but you actually haven't been on the podcast since like much earlier this year when you talked about sneaker bot. You've been busy. Well, absolutely busy, but I think it was February and yeah. this is actually my third time. Am I holding some kind of record or something? No, I think maybe you and Gil are probably close oh, to tied. Okay. I'll have okay. to see, but you do actually have a record. Your episode about sneaker bot is by far the most listened episode in all 140 whatever episodes of Fraudology. It doesn't surprise oh, me. Wow. Great. Well, I'm going to expect like a little plaque or something. I should do that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I owe you something for sure. 
So, well, no, I mean, you really are one of the smartest people I know in the space. And I don't say that lightly. And I'm so lucky to have you not only as a resource, but as a friend. And so I've always had a longstanding invitation to you to come on the podcast, but I've also known how busy you were and haven't wanted to ask, make you feel like you had to. So that's one of the reasons why it's been so long. Of course, I've been joking, but there are so many great professionals in an industry already. So I think they all have to have a chance and they all have a lot to share and we have a lot to learn from so many of them. So it's definitely very valuable to listen to your podcast and listen to some of your guests. Thank you. I always am humbled, especially when people that I know know so much. They, you know, I listen to it and I still get a lot. I'm like, okay, good. But on all of that, I mean, there's at least 10 topics that we could talk about for a couple hours and that we have in the past, but, you know, especially on the podcast, because like I said, you really are one of the smartest people I know, especially in retail and on so many other pieces, the way you tackle things, the way you think about strategy, the way you run your organization and your team, a very lean team, a small but mighty team, the way that you work with your leadership and throughout the company. And you really are somebody who the CEO will call in when there's anything that maybe you possibly could add value to that you might know about. So there are so many things, but one of the things I thought would be great to have you talk about, especially this being the biggest quarter of the year for most online retailers is, you know, for you to share some of what you do to prepare during the calm before the storm of the holiday season. Well, I think the most important thing is to take vacation right before. And <laughs> well, and that's what I wanted. Yeah. So actually, I think that's a good way to start before we really dive into the holiday season. I happen to know that you've been busy and, you know, I happen to know the answers to some of these, but I thought it'd be really helpful for other people to know them too. So I'm going to ask you a few rapid fire questions, so to speak, sure. to kind of help everyone catch up from your last visit in February. So first of all, speaking of vacations, did you take any memorable vacations or holidays this year? That's probably what I live for, to take vacations. Mm -hmm. And if I frog, yes, I've been to Greece, of course. Uh, I think I mentioned this on your previous podcast that I go there every year. I spend like month, month and a half. It's half vacation, half work. And I just like to work with the view of Mediterranean. So that's probably one of the, my favorite places to go to. I really think that you, it wasn't fair that you were sending me so many gorgeous pictures while you were gone, but at the same time, it was gorgeous. And I think it's amazing that you do prioritize that and that your company is, knows that you will work just as hard in Greece as you do when you're in the US. Absolutely. I always say that fraud is not just a job for me. It is the way of life. It is my passion and it doesn't feel like work to me. So it doesn't matter if I'm on a beach or if I'm at home or if I'm in Cincinnati or in Agios Nikolaos. If there is something that I feel it's valuable to learn, to listen to, I will. If there is a report, I'll look over it. If there is a fraud attack, I'll definitely make sure that's taken care of because I appreciate and enjoy the flexibility I have with my company. And that's why I kind of paid back as well. I will be available when, when there is a need. But I'm going to tell you the only podcast I listened to on my vacation was yours, the one on the oh. changes of its visa. So just so you know. Yeah, I'm sorry if I partially ruined your vacation with the episode about the changes with visa coming up. Wait. Absolutely not. I thought it was very important to stay up to date. And that was some important information you shared. So it was really valuable for me. Well, I'm glad and I feel honored on that. So speaking of that time in Greece, what was your favorite place or memory about your time there this summer? 
Well, I actually enjoyed seeing my friends, seeing people that I already know there, meeting some new friends. And it is really good to go back to some foreign country to me and sit in a restaurant and the waiter just brings you a drink. Like it was mm-hmm. my first night back and the waiters bring the drinks I drink without even asking because they recognize me. And From they, like a year before? Yeah. They're, well, this is my fourth year there. So they, right, that's it's true. kind of strange that they are the same waiters. You know, you know how often waiters change. But right. they actually remember remember they remembered me and I was just seeing all of these friends and then my birthday is in July so I had my family there and we were having dinner at one of the restaurants I always go to the restaurant does not sell cakes they sell some small pastries but the restaurant went out of their way to get a cake for me for my birthday and then some of the friends that I met there actually showed up at my birthday dinner which was amazing I always say I love going to Greece I love being there but what makes me really sad that all of my friends I have here and my family that lives in Cincinnati, it can't take all of them with me. And, mm. and as much as I love being there, I also miss my friends. But these people kind of made it up and it was a wonderful day for me. So it, it's absolutely a special place for me. I mean, if a listener or myself, because I know you know that Greece is on my bucket list and I'm hoping to be able to go visit you some one of the summers that you're there during the months that you're there in the next year or two. But so if somebody mentioned that they're planning to go to Greece soon, what is one place you would tell them that they have to go? I think the entire Greece is amazing, but my favorite is Crete. It's an island Crete. The city I go to is called Agios Nikolaos. It's a very small, tiny little city. It's more for families and quiet location rather than some crazy parties. But island itself, it's really large and you probably would have to spend a month on their minimum to see maybe half of it. So there are multiple big cities, wonderful cities, and there is such a big difference between one side of the island versus another. One is more kind of Byzantine culture influence versus another more of a Venetian culture, mm. Roman influence. So it's different buildings, different architecture from one side of the island to another. It was really funny. One of my colleagues here at Finish Line was on the same island on vacation and had a picture and sent it to me and pictures had palm trees on it. And he says, do you know where this is? I said, well, it's not on the east side of the island because east side does not have palm trees, but the west side of the island has palm trees, which is really weird. Wow. People think it's Mediterranean. It's the same yeah. island. Well, so it's definitely very diverse in architecture, in culture. Cretes, Cretans are a little bit different than Greeks. Mm. Their mentality is a little bit different. They're very loud. They're very, they have kind of crazy tempers, but they're <laughs> very, no, they're very similar to Serbians. That's why I kind of fit well. With them. <laughs> but they're extremely, extremely nice, great, mm. great hosts. And so such a warm culture and warm, warm and accepting culture. I, I know you became it. friends with the landlord that you stayed that you rented the apartment which I just think is so fun and and that's definitely the way I like to travel too I'm not super into touristy stuff just kind of become immersed in somebody else's culture and it is just so awesome I'm definitely missing travel again especially as things in the Pacific Northwest are getting gray and dreary right now yeah they're gray here too yeah yeah it's kind of that time of year it's some year we dream about vacations that's really what it is but switching years I mean well, I would much rather, you know, so this podcast isn't called Greaseology, but I definitely wanted you to share some of that because I think a lot of us in fraud want to travel and can travel in some ways. And so it's nice to just know, oh, Diana went to Greece. I can ask her questions or whatever else. It's been since February since you've been here. I mean, this could be an episode all in itself, but just kind of free level, how in your perspective has fraud changed since 
the beginning of 2022? I mean, whether it's generally or specifically at your company. Well, fraud is always changing. I think that's what makes our job very interesting and, and very dynamic. And that's, I think, most of us, that's what we enjoy, this constant change. And I think the biggest part that I feel has changed is expectations. You and I were just earlier talking about customers now maybe expecting more security and not being so worried about having maybe additional friction. Trends are always changing as well. What I also noticed is there is a lot of sophistication, a lot more sophisticated attacks, a lot more sophisticated approach to some type of fraud or some type of financial impact to the company. And I'm not just talking about traditional credit card fraud. The fraud and risks are definitely growing into all other areas of the business. So I always talked about monitoring the entire life cycle of a transaction. And that's now more needed than ever. And I can even hear in an industry and on LinkedIn and everywhere else, everybody's talking more about identity, about account takeovers. Mm. I keep hearing the account takeovers. And I also think that now needs for fraud management and risk management between financial and institutions, financial institutions and merchants are kind of, needs are merging. They're kind of overlapping now. It seems that the risk that financial institutions were experiencing in the past were completely different than what we were experiencing but now it seems that we are getting kind of same players because account takeover is going to be probably same actors on one end and on the other. So I think there is just much more need for this collaboration because we are dealing with the same type of criminal or fraudster. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, especially with, you know, fraud expanding beyond payments and fraudsters working together so much more on Telegram and Discord and others and how important it is for those of us on this side to work together and all of that. And it has just well, fraud is always changing and adapting. I feel like the last two years, it's been on lightning speed, like faster yes, than before, absolutely. for sure. But yeah, I also think that there is more knowledge and more understanding of fraud and, and just more exposure to uh, resources, to collaborations, talking to your colleagues. So I think we just learned faster. So yes, fraud is definitely changing a lot faster than it was before. But I think we also talk more and we are connecting faster. So we're learning faster about those new changes in trend. Yeah, I think that varies based on company, obviously. I mean, you and I are lucky to be a part of a group of about 40 of the largest retailers in the U.S. that meets every other week to share these kinds of things. I've been so fortunate and I've enjoyed every minute of hosting those calls on Zoom and you've been a very active part. And I think that that has helped a lot of them be in it. I would love to be able to, and I'm hoping for 2023 to have more opportunities for Fraudology to host the more of those calls on a bigger scale because there is such a need for that. But you're right, I more companies than ever are realizing that that's a critical component to fraud prevention. And we've been saying it for years, but I think more yeah. people are paying attention. How have you, has your job duties or role changed this year, either officially or unofficially? Officially, I was promoted. Unofficially, yes. um, I am doing um, the same job, but just on a larger scale, I would say. And I think the scope of my responsibility is definitely changing because I am a type of person who, when I see the gap, I'll go ahead and explore it and find a way to close it. So regardless of where that risk gap is, whether it's financial or reputational. So, and I think that's probably a problem with most of the fraud teams. Like they're so focused on actual credit card fraud, the traditional fraud, yeah. maybe credit card fraud. I do not do that. And I, I, maybe I'm fortunate in my 
my position that I can actually step into some other things. But the scope of my responsibility definitely changed because I identified some new opportunities of saving money or bringing more revenue or just closing some of the risk gaps. And the prime example of that is account. I always been working on account security with our vendor and internally we've, we try to develop a way, develop some security features of preventing fraudulent account logins. But then we stepped out of that and went into maybe checking those accounts at the create because being a sneaker and being in the sneaker industry and having all of these kind of benefits of getting multiple sneakers and reselling them, fraudsters are usually creating multiple accounts. So one of the things we're doing right now is focusing a lot on making sure that there is that true known customer because we want to make sure that we improve the the, the experience of that good customer versus giving five accounts to the same person who changes an email. So I think unofficially, this is what changed, but that's only because my personality and my willingness to kind of explore anything else, any other opportunity. Besides that, it stops me honestly from being bored because I'm a type of person who, when I fix something or when I put something in place that works well, I will get bored. So I always look for some new challenges or something new. To this throw. is why you and I get along so well. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I do have to say, I already said this today once, but I have to say that I've been in finish line for six years right now, JD Sports North America. I haven't been born, bored yet. So <laughs> I, I'm well, there's a lot, truly enjoying the secret, right, secret industry and e-commerce and all of it. And then the last question, what is one thing you've done in the last eight, nine months that you're proud of? I created my training. Yay. Many things I'm proud of. I'm actually having son who is graduating high school soon and he was accepted in college. I like to think that I had a little bit of something to do oh, with that. Um, yeah, I think you did, especially as a single mother. Yes, you did. <laughs> yes, that's definitely something I'm very proud of. But yes, I was working for a very long time on creating a training for the overall e-commerce risk management, just kind of a high-level understanding of how it works and what needs to be done and how to measure. So I'm very proud of the fact that I created the content. Now I'm just thinking about the, the best way to present it, but content is definitely there. I am so proud of you for that too. And I'm really excited about it. I have so many conversations, I've told you this before, with people within the e-commerce space and marketplace and vendors as well, you know, as well as Merchants who would really benefit from that, right? That have never had training on that level because it hasn't really existed. And that my heart is with training as well, but in a different way. And I don't think there could ever be enough or too much training or too many training options in our industry because there haven't been enough for so long. So I'm very excited about that. And once you release the training and have a website for people to sign up and register and all of that, I would love to have you back to talk more about it to mm -hmm. be able to give people a course. Yeah. In the meantime, anyone who's interested in that should be following you on LinkedIn because I know that will be the first place that anyone will find out more about that. Yes. And that's coming soon. I think I'm going to wait for the holiday season to be over and then focus on that in the first part of the next year. Well, so good segue. Speaking of the holiday season, let's dive in. You know, I think that not everyone listening to this episode is in e-commerce fraud prevention or in retail e-commerce, right? So they may not know all the reasons why the holiday season is especially challenging for online retailers. I'll hear some people say, well, I've heard that fraud as a percentage isn't higher in the holidays. So what's the point? Or, you know, there's just a lot of misconceptions out there or people don't understand why it is such a big deal. So other than probably the obvious, which is more sales volume, what else is different about the holiday season within e-commerce retail? It is a higher number of sales for sure. And the speed at which sales are 
happening. Also, there is a expectation, customer expectation is there for sure to deliver that really fast. And I think you and I always talk about Amazon and how they set kind of the standard and this expectation for having something within 24 hours. So that puts a lot of pressure on the fraud managers to make sure that everything goes out. But I also think that there is also a change in this expectation of having everything fast and having everything safe. Another thing that this season brings is there are a lot of good players too. So you want to make sure that those good players who are shipping to different addresses, who are maybe shopping out of their typical shopping patterns, who are maybe using different credit cards than what they usually use. So you're going to see them first time with this new credit card. There is a shift in information we're receiving. So you need to make sure that you adapt to that shift and that you are still providing that great customer service and that high approval rate and frictionless experience. But at the same time, you want to make sure that it's safe. I think another risk, especially for someone that does what I do on the refund fraud side. We are constantly hearing about supply chain issues, about deliveries. Is it going to be there before Christmas? Is it going to be there when the cutoff time is? So there's a lot of pressure on handling these refund requests as well. You know, customers may not be happy. They will ask for a refund because they didn't get it by Christmas. But then is it a customer? Is it a refund fraudster? Who it is? This is someone who appears as a good customer, but are they truly? There's just a lot of additional factors in, in this play. And then the velocity and the speed in which everything happens just makes the job a lot more challenging. Yeah. So I don't know if it was Black Friday, Cyber Monday, that whole weekend, like you sent me a picture at four in the morning your time. <laughs> I don't know. It was like 1 a.m. my time. So I was probably asleep. But of you like in your pajamas pushing orders through <laughs> on Black Friday. And I was like, oh, I'm having flashbacks from when I did that too in retail. But that really is, I mean, you don't often have to push orders through as the director and everything else, but you really roll your sleeve. Because as I often will say, if fraud is the game of looking for the needle in the haystack, well, during the holiday season, you triple the hay and you double the needle and it makes it harder. Absolutely. It, it is definitely really challenging. And I always try to be there with my team. I think we start sometimes six o'clock on Black Friday. I always call it Black Fridaying. And <laughs> it is so funny. I will post a picture and say, I'm Black Fridaying. And everybody's asking me, where are you shopping? I'm like, yeah, I yeah. am not. I'm just <laughs> making sure you all can shop. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, in fraud, Black Friday-ing is not shopping. <laughs> this helping other people shop. I just like to be there and we actually monitor everything almost every minute. We do not have any manual review, luckily, so we don't have to do any manual review of the orders. Right. But we do monitor traffic. We're watching for trends. So everything I always talk about when it comes to your baselines, when it comes to your key risk indicators, I monitor that on 24 hours during my regular time. Yeah. But on holiday, I monitor that almost on every 10 minutes. So wow. a alert that would trigger usually like if there is a spike in a fraud declines or in approvals, that spike I would monitor on rolling 24 hours. In this case, I will monitor it on 10 to 15 minutes. So Is that because even 10 to 15 minutes is, I mean, if you were to wait 24 hours, that would be so much more money and so much more volume during the holiday than it would be any other time of the year. Absolutely. And then we also fulfill really fast on that day. I mean, everybody's working really fast. We have only about maybe 15, 20 minutes to cancel the order. So wow. Here's a little inside info. So we really have everything automated. There are other ways to kind of intercept that order within a warehouse, within fulfillment. And then once it's out, we can still stop it. But we really try to get it through to our fulfillment so we can ship really fast. So it's really challenging. So I want to make sure that we do catch everything that we can. We monitor several different things during that day. I just, I don't monitor just the order volume or approval and decline rate. We also monitor any type of fraud alerts, any type of spike based on 
on geolocations or a product or the order order value. But I've been doing this for six years. I've been with Finish Now for six years. So we have historic data on previous Black Fridays, Cyber Mondays. We actually keep track of all of that. We have kind of a little spreadsheet in Excel where we kept everything on the hourly basis. And then we use that to set our baselines. And then we kind of compare what we are experiencing right now against that data to see if there is new going on. But like you said, we usually don't work at 4 a.m. I, I don't. I mean, it was, oh, it was 4 a.m. my time, I think, actually. Nobody think about it. No, it was probably 4 a.m. that day, but we don't usually work at 4 a.m. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The reason we don't is because I did set up these key risk indicators and alerts, and I only work if there is an alert. I mean, I work all the time. I don't want my boss to think I never work. <laughs> oh, she knows. <laughs> she knows. But we only pay attention to these anomalies when there is an alert that tells right. us, hey, there is an anomaly. So I don't have to really go into my fraud screening and check every single order every single minute to know if something is going on. If my risk indicator triggers the alert, it's going to tell me this is outside of your normal behavior, normal trends. Go ahead, look into it. And that happens at 3.35, like a couple of weeks ago. It happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like I had to get up and I had to handle it. Fortunately, it doesn't happen as often. But on Black Friday, I really don't. And Cyber Monday and that entire week. I think it starts with Thanksgiving night mm-hmm. and it lasts until Wednesday after yeah. Cyber Monday. I just want to be there. I don't want to leave anything to chance. I just want to make sure that we have an, we keep an eye on everything. Well, and the fact that you don't have manual review and you don't, you know, and what you're monitoring are, you know, with your data and your, your key risk indicators and, you know, all of that rather than at the ground level, that speaks to just how much work you've put into really overhauling the way that your company does fraud. And I think that especially keeping in mind, and we talked about this on the last episode about the sneaker bots as well, is understanding your business and your customers and their expectations. And especially when you have new drops, and I know that you have new drop, you know, sneaker drops all around the holidays as well as year round, you know that the customer expectation is that they get that item quickly, they get their order through and all that. And so not having that long-term window for waiting for manual review is so important, but also knowing that you can rely on your data. And that means you have worked judiciously and a lot with your fraud provider, as well as having them implement things that you need in different areas to ensure that you can trust that data. And so that you're just looking at when does the red light go on? When does the yellow light go on? When do I need to dive in and figure out something isn't normal? That speaks to just how much work you put in from the strategy perspective. And that's one reason I love to talk to you about strategy because you and I can just blue sky things. And <laughs> yeah. we've had, you know, especially with refund fraud, I think you and I have really found some great, I don't want to say solutions, but some really good ways for companies to reduce that and all of that, which is a whole other topic that I would love to have you come back and talk about <laughs> soon when we have a little bit more to announce on that front too. But, you know, we think about problem solving in different ways and all about kind of the long term, right? And how can we, yeah, it's going to be a lot of work right now up front, but how can we make it so that Going forward, there aren't these peaks and valleys. And if there is, you know, a little bit of a spike because Correct. you've got everything else, you, know, you have this foundation of everything running smoothly. Correct. And I think that's a difference between being an analyst and being a manager. I hate to say it this way because I am an analyst to begin with. First yeah. and foremost, I am an analyst. I analyze this data all the time. So it's nothing to say. I'm not trying to say something bad about being an analyst or being. Oh an analyst. my gosh. No, we have to start there. If I hadn't started out as an analyst, I couldn't be a good leader. Or or strategist, right? Yeah. But I still do it on a daily basis. I analyze maybe not the actual credit cards payments, but, but I analyze some other information to establish some yeah. strategies. But I think if you want to 
be a good manager, you kind of have to step out of this day-to-day thing and think mm-hmm. about what is it that I can use to automate as much as possible. And that's what I, you need to be an analyst to be able to, to create that strategy. So that's what I continuously do is like, what can I, what information I can use that can provide me an indicator where it's important for me to look at, because there is so much, I manage a different processes, 23 key risk indicators. So and there is three of us. Eight processes, 23 key risk indicators, and three people on your team. I just wanted to like reiterate that for anyone that didn't. Yeah, because this is why I think you're a bad or why I know that you're a badass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't want anyone to get fired now. Like you have too many people. Not really, but we have this holistic approach to everything. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to say it's perfect. It's actually not perfect. It's far from it. There are still some things that happen. There is still fraud happens. Refund fraud happens. It drives me crazy when it does. But we use everything we can to learn from it. And I really think, yeah. and I always say, it's extremely important to work with your fraud screening provider and give them as much data as you possibly can because they need that enriched data to be able to make better decisions. Yes. I often hear how companies are fighting back with like, oh, we're not going to have you get this information or you don't need that information. That's not the real way to have a good partnership. You need to work with them and try to provide as much as you can to get better decision for yourself. And then you also have to understand what is it that we are trying to do? I am not trying to stop fraud. I think I said this so many times in so many different events. I am not trying to stop fraud. I am trying to make sure that shopping is safe, that revenue is safe mm-hmm. and that customers are safe. So when you kind of shift your mind to that, then you know exactly what you're looking for. And then you know exactly what you don't want to see and what to do when you do see it. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe. Without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode.
think that's such a good point. It's something that I talked about, I don't know, several months ago where I was like, you know, and I get into this habit all the time of calling it fraud prevention, even more so than trust and safety or anything else. But I would love to see an industry, a, and I would be the first one that would need to correct all of my vernacular, but from calling it fraud prevention to revenue retention, because it is a shift in the mindset. And when you're just focused on fighting fraud, you're often going to fight good customer or good orders and good customers that look risky because that's your main directive. When you're looking at it as I want to keep my consumers and my company and my revenue safe, then you're also not just looking at the payments piece. You're looking every open door, every possibility for there to be, what do you call it when revenue, is it leaking or you have a term that you use when you look for new ways that your company is being maybe targeted for something new outside of payment fraud. Do you remember? Um, If not, it's okay. I don't don't remember it, but I know it was really smart and I probably have it written down somewhere. Probably. I'm a foreigner, remember, I don't know all the words. (laughs) Oh, whatever. (laughs) Even playing foreign, whatever. Um, I can still play that card, come on. <laughs> yes, you can, but it doesn't count for anything with me because I know how smart you are. But I just going back a tiny bit to what you said about companies providing information. I know that you meant vendor companies, right? Vendor partners for whether it's a merchant or a financial institution or a fintech, how important it is for them to provide as much data as possible. Whereas I think what you were talking about is sometimes there are solution providers that are more like a black box and they want to just provide a decision, a yes, no, or, you know, something like that and not provide all of the reasons behind it. And what you're saying is by providing those reasons behind their decisioning, they're helping you trust their decisions and also helping you learn more from anything that does slip through the cracks so that you can fix it and have it not come before. And that's what I see as a holistic fraud approach, right, yeah. is continually having a feedback loop to learn from your losses so that you may have another loss another way, but not in that exact same way than the last time. Yes, that is very important too, but also for you to share data with them as well. Oh, um, yeah. You cannot share, no, not share phone number and expect them or not share email and expect them to provide. Right. But the other way around is important too, because let's say if my goals are not met and if the approval rate or SLAs or anything else is not met, I will definitely want to know every single little piece of information that tells me why that hasn't happened. So we can analyze that information and make changes. But then you need to work to get to the place where you can actually just step back and say, okay, fine, you just make decision now because my approval rate is where it needs to be. My charge rate is where it needs to be. I am not getting customer calls, complaining constantly about decline orders. So we're fine, but it does take a lot to get there. That's not something like I'm going to integrate with broad solutions back and watch that. That, that does not right. No, no, no. I mean, I don't remember if we mentioned this on a previous podcast episode or not, maybe the first one you were on, but how, especially for the first couple of years that you worked with your core fraud provider within your account manager's phone, I think that the most frequently people, people that called him were his wife, his mother, and you. <laughs> I don't remember the exact order, but you mother, went off for you. Was, I, was, I was the third one. I was yeah. the third one. I don't know who was top two, <laughs> but I was definitely third because I'm most frequently called person. It's important to hold your partners accountable, not only because you're paying them, but that also helps them get better too. And that helps them be able to say, to yeah. understand your problem and then be able to work with other merchants too, to understand that too because they are one step removed, right? So it is important to have that information flowing. But that's exactly a definition of good partnership. You know, you want to make sure that you stay in touch, that you communicate on a regular basis. And maybe I was communicating a little little bit too much, but that was me. I was also, I think those first couple of years, I was also still learning a 
lot about this new industry. I've been in fraud industry for so long, and I've been working with many different retailers, uh, everything from phone companies, mailing orders back a million years ago, yeah. all the way to like high-end designers. But I do have to say sneaker business is whole another piece. The oh, way yeah. the front looks like and the way bots operate is completely different. So it was a lot of learning for me as well. And, and we had to make sure that we have the right information, that we have kind of understanding. And I think it was also important for them to understand I am someone who watches this all the time and I will have a million questions because I want results. Because at the end of the day, I'm the one who is responsible for providing that results. A hundred percent. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's your, you know, you're the one who's owning the successes and the failures. And so you need to understand how to answer any questions that you're going to get. And the only way you're going to know that is to understand. And I think that that actually, I mean, we're going a little bit in a different direction than just holiday, but I think it's important to skip through a couple of the questions that I came up with earlier and talk about this because I've seen a real resistance from some people, whether it's in a lot of it's in retail because they have had the luxury of having 24 hours worshiping or whatever it is, right? It's not physical goods or some digital goods worth instant delivery where some companies really, really want to hold on to manual review. And I do think that in some cases, a hybrid of manual review and automated is a good thing depending on so many other factors. But I would say not to just get so hung up on the control piece, because actually we've seen from the data and I've definitely seen it in working with different types of companies, you can actually have higher approval rates and lower chargeback rates when you are working with the right front provider and the right machine learning and, and all of those different pieces. And you are holding them accountable, like it is possible to have really good rates without any manual review whatsoever. And I think that's a myth that I continually hear. No, 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 we need to have, I mean, I was just talking to someone the other day, they have 45 people on their manual review team. Now they inherited this team. They did not hire all of them. And of course, like they don't want to lay people off at all, but maybe instead refocus them somewhere else, especially for a digital goods company. Having 45 manual reviewers is going to cause a lot of issues, going to cause a lot of confusion, a lot of inconsistency, right? Because you have 45 different brains looking at things. Whereas when you're focused on you know, one core machine learning model or whatever you're the process and the tool that you're using, it's going to be a lot more consistent. I understand not wanting to lose your staff, but at that point, you're probably doing just manual review, just credit card fraud. And there are yeah. so many other opportunities. If you look at the logins, mm-hmm. if you look at the create, if you look at bots, if you look at any rewards, if you have reward programs, if rewards are being generated appropriately, mm-hmm. if they're being used. You're right. Parts. Returns and refunds. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's yeah. so much more opportunity out there to utilize those resources other than right. manual review. And you know what? Honestly, I love the fact that I don't have any manual review because holiday seasons are so much easier mm. that I don't have to worry about hiring and training and making sure that this person really truly knows how to make a good decision. So not only that, but I think that we're all going in that direction. I do have to say that there are some companies out there that I still think probably need some of the manual review. I would say it depends not just on who the merchant is or who the retailer is or, you know, who the practicing company is or the buyer, however we're calling it, right? Because there's so many different types of companies that listen to fraudology. I'm trying to be inclusive. But in this case, just talking about e-commerce, not only like for the different e-commerce business models, but also it depends on the fraud tool you use. I would not suggest that all fraud tools could be trusted enough to not have that human component. And I'm not, you know me and 
everyone listening knows I will not name names publicly, but I'm just going to say I see a lot of patterns and a lot of trends because I talk to a lot of merchants. And so I'm just going off of data. I'm not going off of personal opinion. Yeah, but um, also I do see a lot of posts out there and companies claiming one thing or another. I, mm-hmm. I think that's that's the recipe for failure. You mean sure. vendor companies claiming? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And that's that's very dangerous. Yeah. But also from the fraud manager perspective, you cannot expect to jump into something and have it 100% automated. Maybe that's not for you. Maybe the right. product you're selling, the type of risk you're facing or the, the location where you're selling, it's not really possible for you to have 100% automated, but you can strive to that. We didn't start 100% automated. We start well, it was 100% automated for us, but our vendor was reviewing small portion of our orders. And then we, because of our new product launches, we kind of had to move towards more automated. And maybe even right. there are some orders that they still review manually right now, but it does not time frame for our fulfillment does not change. It's we are not impacted in any way. We should have 100% automation, but we don't feel anything. If they feel that there is something they need to manually review, we will not feel any impact. But it took time to get where we are. Yeah. This does not happen overnight. So again, maybe there are some merchants out there that can still kind of have that hybrid approach. I hope everybody has hybrid approach and not yes. just strictly rule basis. And that's so not good right now. Well, especially with the fraud attacks we're seeing, I mean, there are definitely several that take advantage of rules only based system in a way that other other types of solutions don't, as well as the types of layers you have, right? Like how much verification information are you getting and all that? And all of those, there is no one cookie cutter risk stack because every company has different types of exposure and all of those things, business model, et cetera. But I do think it's good for you to say that manual, like, more control doesn't necessarily mean more accuracy. Oh, absolutely not. It just takes a lot more time for you. You have to be an expert. You have to be a great analyst. You have to be great at mathematics and statistics to be able to review all of these rule performance reports and rules detection report and make sure that you tweak it appropriately so your rule can be at the optimized use. And unless you're doing this, you cannot tell me that your rule-based system is performing well. Unless you're truly running rule detection report and rule performance report every day or every week at least, and reviewing them and tweaking them, your rule-based system is not doing well and you're not doing well. Right. So, I mean, there are probably a lot more opportunities out there. So, um, And to your point, like manual reviewers are often just focusing on transaction fraud. And so our rule-based systems, whereas now, I mean, back to kind of the beginning of our conversation when I asked how has fraud changed in the last eight, nine, 10 months. It is way beyond just payment. It's accounts, it's loyalty and promo to the point where it's like costing companies billions of dollars on the loyalty yeah. and promo part. I feel like we kind of gloss over that, but, and I've had a couple of people tell me like, that's not really that big of a deal. I'm like, really? Because you're not tracking it. That's right. You're not tracking it. And also like, uh, yeah. It, or it's being disguised as some other type of fraud. I keep hearing yes. account takeover, You're account right. takeover, account takeover. And I'm thinking, how do you know? Why do you identify something as an account takeover if you actually do not screen account logins? This is mm. just an actual fraud to you. That was also an account takeover. But I wouldn't identify something as an account takeover if I did not screen the account login. Because account takeover happens at that point. If right. it comes down to your transaction, then it's just your regular transaction fraud. 
it's no longer a counting or I mean, it is, but it's no longer a counting or and it should no longer be observed and mitigated as a counting or a counting or is supposed to be mitigated where the accounting or happens. So I feel that a lot of people are just throwing these phrases out and these yeah. like, buzzwords out so they can feel important or they can feel that they are handling issues. But if you come down to the actual payment piece and if the fraud is identified at the transaction point, it's no longer accounting or at least not to you. And it's your approach to the management shouldn't really change. Right. No. Yeah. I get, yeah. And every company is different. Whereas sometimes InfoSec will own the account login part. Other times fraud is responsible for it. Other times. But no if you have 45 manual review, people will just go ahead and send some to monitor account. Right. <laughs> I know. Yes. And to be yeah. fair to that person, in case they're listening, I know that they inherited the team and they know that they have a lot of work to do. That was not a team that they built up themselves, but I actually left a role that I was hired for fairly quickly in part because the person who hired me to run the team, had, we just had such very different philosophies to fraud prevention. In my perspective, it was let's get the technology in place and layers in place and then see how many people we need to hire. And in their perspective, it was let's hire 50 people right away. Let's train them all up but have them be trained by different people because nobody has enough bandwidth to train all 50. Like just, it was, it was chaos. And meanwhile, we're having all this fraud and then we'll figure out the tool. And it was such a, unfortunately, because I was outranked, I lost that battle. Well, then you were matching tool to the training that you have. You're not matching training to the tool, which is right such away. That's a good point. Yeah, it just didn't make sense to me for so many reasons. But in fairness to that company, they did change their ways about a year later. But unfortunately, there were a lot of people who were affected where they were hired and then displaced or laid off or whatever. And that's not fair to them either. So obviously, we've gotten a little bit off track, but such is our conversations. And I do think that that's important, though, because I think that a lot of times people are like, wait, you don't have manual review? Like you hear that all the time. And then I'll also hear from people like we could not have it. And I understand why, because 10 years ago, we absolutely had to because the majority of systems were rules-based. But now when you have a hybrid of rules and machine learning, as well as, you know, you're working with a partner that you're holding accountable and that you know that you can trust their data and you know that you have enough data to be able to look at those milestones and and look at the KRIs and, you know, I always get KPKRIs, the key risk indicators to see, oh, this is spiking then you can do that and be better. I mean, your your rates, which I'm not going to ask you to share on a public platform at all, because I know you wouldn't and you shouldn't, but your rates for approval and chargeback are phenomenal, especially for your business sector. So it, the proof is in the data. But exactly, but it's continuous work. It is continuous right. look for opportunity. What next? What else? What what are we missing? I mean, we have some fraud spikes where we then talk to our fraud screening provider and ask them well, what we can change. Can you change this? Can you analyze this? But the first thing I always ask is, can you analyze and see what is the opportunity? I don't say mm-hmm. do this. Just analyze and tell me what is the opportunity, what we can do. What do we have? Where do we have bandwidth to make changes? But I do understand some of the need for manual review. And I understand some of the control piece because I'm controlling person. I think every <laughs> controlling person, but I realized that if I'm only focusing on that part, I am only controlling that part. This way, I have an opportunity to control the entire transaction life cycle of a transaction rather than just know. 
part. Mm. And then it gives me an opportunity to partner with the others in my company to help them improve these parts of this transaction lifecycle and make it overall better. So in sense, because I stepped back from just having a manual review team into doing something even larger on the larger scale and have more control than I had before. So because these days, it's not just the risk is not just there. That's where you are. That's where you identified. But risk can happen in anywhere during that life cycle. I took everything I had not to yell out. Amen. I so agree with you. But going back to holidays just a little bit. So I know that you and several others we know in online retail will often say that if you're just thinking about the holiday season in retail beginning in October, that you're starting too late. And speaking as someone who was hired on by a very large company in October to help them reduce fraud for the holiday season in 2019. I think I spent 22 nights out of 30 that first month I was working with them in hotels because I had to like just really focus on gathering all the information and, you know, putting in a short-term solution for holidays and then a longer term. And I mean, gratefully, the data was phenomenal, but it took a lot of work. If someone listening is in retail and e-commerce and doesn't know if they've done enough up until this point to prepare for the storm in the next two months, what are like two to three things that you would suggest every retailer do before the latest unofficial start of holiday shopping season? And I've noticed it seems like the more, you know, it used to always be Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and it's still, those still are big holidays. But I've noticed in the last two years, especially that it seems like November 11 is kind of the unofficial start of holiday sale. No, in retail, but in the U.S., that is Veterans Day. And in China, it is Singles Day, which is actually way bigger than Black Friday, Cyber Monday combined. So what are a couple of things that you would tell people do these now if you haven't done them already? Yes, you're right. If you haven't done anything so far, you're probably late, but it's not hopeless. Let's just make sure we say that. Unfortunately, I had to reprioritize lately because of some changes within my team. So I was in a position that the plan I had was not the plan that I'm going to be able to implement all the way. Still, most of this works, but I had to reprioritize. So I can just use that as an example for someone who is maybe building for the first time. First, I think it's very important to focus on those key risk indicators that are causing the biggest financial risk. Financial and reputational risks are probably the bigger, but I think we are all here to save money. So we're going to focus number one on the financial risk. So identify what is the one thing or two things or three that can happen that can cause the greatest financial risk to you. I would say in this case, that's your fraud ring. So then I understand what is your normal behavior during the regular shopping time and what would be something that would indicate that fraud ring to you. Find a way to learn about that fraud ring ahead of time. So, and then find a way to mitigate that risk. So first thing is identify what your risk is, find a way to be notified of that risk immediately and find a way to mitigate that risk. And I I think one of the things I said the other day when I did a webinar about uh, holiday readiness is when you talk about this is my risk, this is the process I'm monitoring, which is your risk. This is what is the risk that can happen, which is your fraud ring. This is the alert that's going to tell me that it's happening and this is who's going to handle it. It may not necessarily be you. And I think it's very important for everyone to understand even if you're mitigating the risk and you're focusing on fixing that, it may not be you. If it's a fraud ring, it's probably a fraud screening solution. Maybe it is your manual review T. But if your fraud solution, God forbid, is not working, 
then it's actually your IT, your integration team that has to help you get this information. So be very fair to yourself and, and clear with yourself. Identify that risk and then figure out who is supposed to help you close the gap. If it's account takeover, it may not be you. It may be your loyalty team or your account team who's supposed to close that gap. So just make sure that you identify mm-hmm. the right people within your organization and your external vendors and your partners to help you mitigate this risk. So it's not too late. I was always, I, I was joking when I said, that was too late even on that webinar. But what I think it's very important thing in our holiday planning, and it's definitely not too late for that, is lessons learned. Whatever yeah. plan you create, when you come back in January, February, whenever your holiday season ends, and ours does not end in January because there are chargebacks. Mm-hmm. But whenever your season ends, you can sit down with those same teams and go through this plan. What did go well? What didn't go well? What can we change? And that is actually the beginning of your holiday planning. So I kind of did that on purpose to say it's late, just to come back to the beginning. Your lessons learned is the beginning of your holiday planning for the upcoming season. And then I think it's very important to meet internally with your teams, with all of your partners, mm-hmm. and make sure you align on those risks. Align with the identifying that risk. Align Line on actions that you're going to take, align on who's going to be responsible for what. Make sure you have those contact numbers. And one thing I do, I do level of escalation, communication escalations. Hmm. If I say level one is Carice, she needs to respond in 15 minutes. So I align on time frame as well. And if hmm. Carice does not respond in 15 minutes, who is my level two escalation? Probably Carice's boss, which is Arlo. Arlo is my dog, just so everyone knows. <laughs> he is my boss. Carice <laughs> loves Arlo. So, you know, make sure you reach out to the second escalation. Yes. And then if it's if you don't get response within 15, 30 minutes, whatever your time frame is, then you go ahead and call CEO and you sit on the phone until you get the response. But, you know, you just have to make sure that you, whatever plan you create, you need to share with the people, with the parties mm-hmm. that are involved in this plan and the risk management, because you need to make sure you align on those expectations. So I I think it's, planning is extremely important, but a little bit of control freak here, a little bit, and a little bit of OCD here that just likes to have everything written, have everything kind of organized so I know where to go next. But I think that that's really a good way of doing it. I mean, I think that for so long, absolutely, especially, you know, in any online company that has any spike of a season, whether it's holiday, whether it's tax season, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, I think it's really important to have plans ahead of time. Otherwise, you're just constantly in firefighting mode and we've been there and we can do it. But then what? Right. Like if it's a constant state of chaos and you're just kind of waiting for whatever comes and then you're hoping that somebody in another department is going to answer your email. But knowing that this is also a very busy time for them, too, and they may not understand, oh, this is a level one or this is a level two or whatever it is. It's critical. I mean, I was just talking about it on an episode a couple of weeks ago about some of the spikes in account takeovers that retailers have seen and how, you know, on the cybersecurity side, they often talk about having like tabletop drills and having crisis plans and knowing exactly, okay, if we have a data breach, who's going to contact communications? Okay, what is communications going to do? What is legal going to do? What is IT going to do? What is, who's going to, when are we going to contact law enforcement? All of the pieces. And I don't understand why we don't do more of that in fraud when there's a fraud attack or when there is a holiday season or a spike in something, because otherwise, 
you're just kind of throwing stuff against the wall. And that is also what isolate fraud department and silos you yes. from other teams because you don't have time to reach out to them or they're not, they don't understand the importance of your email or why it matters or anything else because you didn't plan ahead. Yes. And I think that's exactly what it is. And we have this all the time. Nothing changes from my regular risk planning to my holiday risk planning. It's just maybe levels are a little bit different because yeah. age lines are a little bit changing. And then we do include more of the organization into the holiday versus some other versus regular shopping time because I have backups. Just if something happens, I do have backups. There's customer service, customer uh, e-commerce, customer support teams that are our backups. So we maybe include them a little bit more, but it's not that they're not our backups if we need them during the regular shopping time. So, and that's why I always talk about having those KPIs and understanding what the KPIs are and then having escalation level and key risk indicators. That should be constantly going, not just during the holiday. During the holiday, you just kind of tweak it and make it respond right. to, the, to the right risk. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. And you mentioned the webinar that you did recently for Cardot Present. It was for the virtual summit series. And I I'll include a link to that recording in the show notes so that people can really see how you really do plan because you break things out in your responsibilities for your fraud team into two categories like operational and strategic. You also talk more about some of the strategies for cross-department collaboration, which I would also add in talking with those other departments and saying, hey, if this happens, who do we talk to in your team? And if that happens, then they realize, wow, they really know what they're doing. And they also realize like what you have oversight into. And so if something looks interesting or weird or different on their end, like say it's the loyalty team, right? And they're yes. like, wow, we just saw an influx of 30,000, you know, new signups in an hour, like instead of them being really excited about that, maybe because you've had these conversations with them before, they might say, let's just check with Diana first before we run a lap around the building to celebrate all of these new signups yeah. and all that. Right. So that, that would be part of it, too. That is so funny that you mentioned that because we do have an internal holiday planning meeting. And that was one of the things I mentioned. Actually, our team, specifically one person, is extremely good about communicating events with me. He actually reaches out directly to me and tells me, this is the event we're running. This is what we're expecting. This is a promotion, whatever. And I did mention that yesterday, instead of me thinking, oh my gosh, something is going on because this is a risk indicator. It's an anomaly in the regular behavior. I know that this is happening. So I'm not like going completely crazy and managing something where I was chasing something that I should be chasing. So it is very important to communicate. And that's one thing I always share with the entire organization is like, let me know of any events, issues, problems. Let me know ahead of time or include me so I can help resolve some of those. I often make a joke that we're like janitors. We find out last and then we go and clean it up. Yep. I remember you making that janitor comment a couple months ago because they're, yeah. And sometimes mistakes happen in other departments, right? And they, you know, something happens. I'm not saying specifically at your company, just in general, I've heard of that, you know, over and over again. And, you know, it's important that like they know, okay, we need to let Diane, this is going to affect fraud or somehow this is going to affect fraud because otherwise it seems like, you know, a lot of times if people don't understand what fraud does or anything else, they don't understand that like, oh, if we do this, it's going to create more charge facts. Or if we do that, it might do this. So maybe can we let people know ahead of time that these charges weren't start or whatever it is, right? Can we get in there ahead of time and can you advise them? Because yeah. for example, we monitor rewards as well and promo codes used. So yeah. if there's a promotional for 50% off or 40% off, and I suddenly see 100 transactions with 40% off during the regular time, I'm going to say this is not right. really normal. 
I need to go and dig into this and investigate, see what's happening. Maybe stop these orders, maybe cancel them, something. But if I know that this is a promotion we are running, of course, I'm going to say, okay, it's normal behavior. We're going to let it go. Right. So it is very important to communicate, to collaborate. These are relationships that need to be built. It doesn't happen overnight. You have to spend some time, invest some time. And I think I have made one thing on that presentation as well, where I said, be a meeting crasher. I crash meetings all the time when I'm not invited or I'm invited because I asked them, like, invite me. Can I be there? And I always say, I don't want to do anything more than I already do. We have our hands full as it is. So if I really absolutely don't see a need for us to plug in our knowledge and expertise in something, we probably we won't. I don't need right. to do that. My job is not to make someone's life miserable. My job is to make sure everyone is safe. But if we do see that there is a need, there is a risk gap, I would rather close it then and there than wait for something to happen where the mitigating that risk is going to be slower, much more expensive, and it's just going to create probably some bad build-on solution that's not going to give us value we need. Yeah. And I think something else that you and I have talked about over time is, you know, just there is sometimes, and I understand it, sometimes complacency can come up, right? As a fraud manager, if you feel like the rest of your company doesn't listen to you very often and they don't understand the importance of what you do, there are some people who just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, you know what, my company doesn't care about this, so I'm going to do the best I can do. And I think that you and I have very different personalities in that where we're like, no, we're going to find a way. But I think that one thing I would love for you to share and then we'll you know wrap up soon is, you know, what you say to people when they're like, I can't get my company to care or, oh, it's nice that you crash meetings, but I don't even know when they happen. That kind of thing. Because I think that's something that has been creeping up and impacts people in all areas of fraud prevention, not just in retail. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but I know this is something that, you know, <laughs> Here is one thing that I found to be true, 100%. If you feel that you are in silo and you're isolated, you are not alone. Every department in your company feels that they're in silo and isolated and you don't listen to them because we really don't understand what they do. We don't fully understand what they do. So I think in their efforts and their projects and whatever they're trying to do, they feel a little bit isolated. So I think we have to be the ones to make that first step if we cannot, if others are not making that step. So if somebody's not inviting you to a meeting, use the next opportunity when something happens when you are in a meeting and say, hey, can you make sure I'm added to anything going forward so we can avoid this in a, in a future? But I just think more and more I collaborate with other teams. I, I actually notice that they feel isolated too. They feel that we are not listening to them. We don't understand what they do. We don't understand what they're trying to do. So I think instead of you trying to bring everyone to you and make them understand what your job is and how their processes fit into what you are trying to do, do it the other way around. Try to understand what their jobs are and how your process can actually fit and improve what they are trying to do. And that's what I always start with. Okay, we're creating a loyalty program or we're creating new promo code or we're creating something new. I'm not going to tell them, hey, but you know, there is fraud. So you need to you need to consider fraud. No, I'm going to go there and say, yes, this is what can happen. And this is how we can help you make sure that it doesn't. So don't expect them to know what you do because you don't know what they do. And right, they do a lot. True. So yeah. just try to make sure that you understand and you kind of share, this is what we can do to help you and make it safe 
safer, make it better. But I think it's also think about who are your partners in your company, probably everyone. But I have that 360 approach that I shared once once long time ago where I separated fraud risk management process actually into four categories, prevention, investigation, reporting, analytics, and strategy. And then I think who in my company fits into each of these categories. Maybe somebody doesn't fit in any, but maybe some departments fit into multiple categories. So who is your fraud prevention partner in your company? It is your customer service team. They are the first ones that find out if there's fraud, if customers Mm. call. It's also your digital team, your merchandising team that puts these promotions out and this product out. They are the ones that can tell you, hey, we have a promotion going on. So share that with your fraud vendor and make sure that your fraud vendor, when they're screening, take these events into consideration. So who is your fraud investigation? Well, whoever does your chargebacks is your fraud investigation. Your cybersecurity is your fraud investigation. Your reporting and analytics, if you have reporting teams like business intelligence teams, they are your partner in that. So think about who is your partner in that organization and reach out to them. Just go ahead and create 15 to 30 minutes meeting and tell them, hey, this is who we are. This is what we cover. This is what we protect. What do you have that can help us do our job better? And hmm. what, can, what do we have to help yeah. you do your job better? So I've done this for probably the first two years of my job here. And also the reason that the best outcome of this, besides great collaboration we have, I think it's also reusing existing resources, repurposing yes. existing resources. There's so many reports that exist out there that I needed and that I would have probably created myself, but I didn't need to. They already existed. I just used them. I used the information maybe in a different way that it was originally intended. But the great example is our refund fraud claims. There is a report that goes mm-hmm. out every week on a refund fraud claims or, or any refund claims, not just refund fraud, but any claims that is processed in a system. I used the existing report that was created for something completely different, but at least I used it and I had data that tells me how many refunds happened, what are yes. the reason codes for these refunds, what are the reason conditions and so on. So did not reinvent the wheel, did not create anything new, just used what already existed and existed probably way before I even joined the company. That's amazing. And it's similar to what Haley Wyndham said a couple of weeks ago too, where she went to each department and was like, how can I help you? And how can I explain to you what we do? And then, hey, what do you, you know, what is some insight? Because fraud and trust and safety departments have so much insight into customers, good and bad and everything else, but also, you know, helping if you don't understand what they do, they probably don't understand what you do. So like start with, hey, I'd love for you to understand what we do and see if there's a way that maybe we could at least just keep each other in touch or if something bad happens, you know where to come. And that should be a year long or, or years long goal. Yes. Not necessarily something you can do at holiday, but it is something that will come in handy and have so much payoff. And it also helps with the rest of the company seeing how valuable your department is. And when it comes time to get a promotion, know that they need to do everything they can to keep you because they know that you run things well. Yes. I hope they will keep me. (laughs) I enjoy my job a lot. But I think the great example is the other day we had some, some small issue going on and just texted me, can you join the call? We're just talking about this. Hmm. So I joined the call. They're talking about whatever they're talking. I'm sitting there quietly taking information. But then as they're talking more, sharing more information, because I monitor end to end of this transaction lifecycle, mm-hmm. like thinking, where's the gap? Where's the gap? Where's this particular issue? Where it could have hit me? Yeah. And I did find some other issue that actually happened because of that. And there was something else. We found actually some few things that we were able to fix because I was added to the call that was about something completely completely different. Yeah. And even the person who added me to the call, he said, I added you on purpose because I knew you were going to know. But I touched so many points of this transaction and on yeah. the customer journey on our site that I can kind of 
understand where the gap is and what can be impacted by the smallest possible issue. Right. A hundred and ten percent. That's why I often say that, you know, the fraud manager or the fraud leader or trust and safety leader or whatever your title is, that the person who's in charge of all this in your company is the Swiss army knife because they do need to know end to end customer engagement. They need to know that feedback and they need to understand cause and effect of every piece of that. So if there's one piece that's out of whack, even if it doesn't have anything to do with fraud, but it might have to do with payments or, you know, wherever else in the or login or whatever, you might have some insight because you'll know where in the process is the problem? Who do we need to talk to about it? And then what else is that going to impact? And I think on that specific issue, you you did call me on that one and I had fun helping you troubleshoot it. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> and I knew more about that one than anybody else in the call, including the, the vendor that was helping us with it. But yeah, it was payment processor. But I called that plane approach. And you know why, remember? I told you the story about my airplane approach. No, did you tell it on the podcast? No, I didn't. Oh, <laughs> It's just funny because when Erin, the girl that works with me, called yeah. me and the airplane was landing. Oh, that's right. Yes. As soon as it landed, I picked up the phone and she talked me through the issue and I actually resolved the issue standing in the plane, getting my carry-on luggage on the top. Because I understand the process and I made sure that I understand the process and I'm right. just find where the issue was. But if you want to do anything well, not just fraud, you have to make sure that you educate yourself about mm. all ins and outs of that job to be able to do it well. I couldn't agree more. Well, my friend, we could obviously talk for so much longer, but I am just so grateful that you took time to share on the podcast, you know, some of what you do for the holidays. I will implement or I will put the link to the webinar that you did specifically on holiday prep in the show notes of this episode, if anyone wants to look. And I am so excited for your management training to come out in the beginning of 2023. And I think it's going to be the first of many. I think that you have a really good approach because you have worked in several different areas of fraud, not just in e-commerce, banking and others, you bring all of that together and think about things in a holistic way and in a lean way that is scalable and sustainable. And I know that there are so many people love to learn from you as well. So I'm excited about that. Thank you so much. I'm excited too. And hopefully it's going to be helpful. Oh, I have no doubt that it will be. Well, thank you again. And we will hopefully have you back maybe after the holidays to talk more about the specifics of the training that you're launching, Zan. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.